it's obvious to me why so many smart people are singing Docusaurus's praises. Sebastian, because you definitely sweated the details. It's clear to me, even though you may have a different take on SPAs than I do, that you've thought it out and you've like actually mm. done the hard work of like mm -hmm. figuring out answers. Some people just pick an SPA and throw it over the fence and don't care about their users. You clearly do. One example of that in your own website's documentation, even go so far as like helping people pick their deployment targets based on what they, how much work they want to put in and how much money they have kind of a thing. Nice. You do a really, really good job of being a great documentation site for a documentation site generator. You've put so much work in, all the little details. Really, really good job. Uh, it's an impressive project. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Raygun. Get instant visibility into the health of your software, actionable, real-time insights into the quality and the performance of your web and mobile apps. And I'm here with John Daniel Trask, co-founder and CEO of Raygun. JD, how does the interface of Raygun help a team see progress? Because sometimes progress is better than simply goals. You know, the goal is to have high performing software, of course, but the progress to get there is not easily measured or celebrated along the way. Yeah, this is something that I often find I end up speaking with more at the executive level with some customers because it's also important to remind folks that aren't necessarily software engineers that, you know, bugs are common. You know, it's not the team's fault that there are bugs. And that's where we go back to the trajectory thing. Like, are we actually making progress? So sometimes the work we're doing with folks, we present like an error inbox where we group things up so that you're not having to deal with every single instance. You can work at the sort of root cause level. And so that just looks really familiar, almost a little bit like Gmail, but you've got some charts, some beautiful attractive charts that will show you how you're going. It could be an engineering manager. It could be a QA leader. It could be anybody that can kind of say, look, the chart is going down towards the right. You know, that's what we want to be doing less less errors or we want to get the response times up similarly you want to make sure that you're presenting that data in the most scientific way so no averages you know just just use medians p99s i want to understand the outliers you know averages are just lies so get the real data understand where you are and just start chipping away at it very cool thank you jd all right head to raygun.com to learn more and start your free 14-day trial no credit card required join thousands of customer-centric software teams who use raygun every single day to deliver flawless experiences to their customers again raygun.com this is js party your weekly celebration of javascript and the web connect with us on the web at jsparty.fm on twitter at jspartyfm and at all things open we'll be there will you Thanks to our friends at Fastly for delivering our shows super fast all around the globe. Check them out at Fastly.com. And to Fly.io, deploy your app servers close to your users, no ops required. Learn how at Fly.io. Okay, hey, it's party time, y'all. Jared, and it is time once again for JS Party. Today, I'm joined by my friend Amel. What's up? Hi, Jared. Happy to have you here with me. Same. Are you a DocuSaurus fangirl? I am. I am all for helpful abstractions. You know, don't make me do the same thing twice. There you go. Just abstract it. So very excited about this show. 
I am as well. I'm a big fan of documentation. It's like one of the hardest, most gritty, laborious parts of the job, but like so, so important. And so I appreciate anybody who works on tooling to help us all write better docs. And so we're happy to have Sebastian Lorber here with us today. What's up, Sebastian? Hi, I'm finding you. Very good. Very good. Happy to have you. We've been trying to have you on the show for a little while, but you've had less than stellar internet quality. Now you yeah. have the fast <laughs> internet and we are good <laughs> to go. So we've been excited for this particular episode. For those who haven't heard of DocuSaurus, this is right off the website. It's a static site generator. It builds a single page app with fast client side navigation, leveraging the full power of React to make your site interactive. It provides out of the box documentation features, but can be used to create any kind of site, like a personal site, a product, a blog, marketing landing pages, et cetera. That was news to me. I thought it was just about docs, but now it's more than that. We'd love to hear your relationship to the project and how you got involved. I should say that 2.0 is like the big release this summer, a complete rewrite. And so if you've looked at DocuSaurus in the past, it's worth looking at again today. Sebastian, how did you get involved with the project? Actually, the, it was quite funny because um, it's from Twitter. I saw a tweet and I just uh, answered and <laughs> I got the job. I'm not, uh, the DocuSaurus is from uh, Facebook, which is now Meta, and I'm not uh, an internal employee. I'm just a freelancer working for them on the project. So I think it was a quite unique opportunity to to be paid to work on open source, which is something I always wanted to do. And uh, it happens that, uh, that I was a good candidate for the job. And uh, two months after having uh, answered that tweet, I, I was able to, to start working on the project. Hmm. What was the content of this magical tweet that got you this work? Like help the rest of us land such jobs. This was uh, Joel Marseille from Facebook that tweeted something like uh, they were looking for a contractor to work on uh, DocuSaurus. I didn't even know what uh, DocuSaurus was at this time, but uh, I took a look and this uh, this looked interesting. So I didn't know the project. So before candidating, I tried it a bit to be able to understand what it was about. And um, I mean, documentation is not the, the most sexy uh, kind of work that uh, everybody dreams of working. It was not uh, something I planned to work on uh, at that time, but I thought the project was still interesting, so I wanted to get involved. And, and now I think uh, I like uh, the idea of uh, of creating a nice documentation websites, and uh, I see the value of uh, having good documentation tools to to create a great uh, developer experience. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, what helped to get the job is um, that I had like maybe six years of React experience at that time, and also. Um, I sent a, a few little pull requests with a good test coverage and everything really nicely done so that maybe the others will be able to see that I'm able to contribute to this project. Somehow I did the job before adding the job so that I can get it officially. <laughs> That is so cool. Um, so we've been talking on the show a lot about working in the open. Lately, we had a Gleb, Dr. Famous, legendary Gleb Bahmatov mm -hmm. on the show again recently talking about his open source work. And 
and Swix. Swix has been uh, on the show a few times and he's a proponent of this as well. But this idea of working in the open and all the wonderful benefits that it gives you, not in terms of just being able to showcase your work and being able to take your work with you regardless of who's paying your paycheck, right? Like, yeah. But also just the credibility that it lends you, right? So I, I love that. Like the story is such a, it's such a like, web 2.0 job story like like saw a tweet like learned about this did some open source work proved that i could do the job and then got the job like i love this like it's yeah (laughs) i would love to hear that kind of a story more often you know this is exactly my inspiration because uh i mean i read maybe the build in public uh no it's not build in public it's learn in public working in open or working in the public yeah oh nadia's book no, it was from uh, Sean Wang uh, Swix. Uh, oh, okay. Oh, right, right, right. He created a gist about the topic and even uh, yeah. wrote a, a book about it and I read it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I it gave me a lot of uh, good ideas. I was already a contributor to open source because I contributed to things like a bit of uh, Redux, Apollo, Redux Saga, uh, and many other libraries in the the React ecosystem, but I was not a, an official maintainer of any of these projects. It was more opportunistic. When I had a bug in one of my projects, I fixed it. But uh, reading the, the book of uh, Sean Wang and many other things uh, that uh, were popular at this time on the internet led me to start creating content. I created my first blog maybe uh, three or four years ago and then um, started to post daily on LinkedIn my uh, React Insights. And this led me to creating a newsletter for React developers, which today has 10,000 developers, which is called uh, thisweekinreact.com. And um, all this is somehow related because uh, I started to create content because I wanted to... I mean, there are a lot of people that are knowledgeable, but they keep the knowledge for for themselves and never share anything. And um, I think it's somehow a shame that uh, the, the knowledge stay locked inside the, the brain of uh, yeah. of clever people. Some people don't like uh, social networks and things like that, so yeah. mm-hmm. so they don't share, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, in all fairness, I think we talked about this when Gleb was here, but like, I personally think that it's a privilege to work in the open. I think it's a privilege to, to share and it's a privilege to be able to have that, like, you know, kind of unfiltered relationship with your work, right? Mm. And, you know, not everyone has the time to do that or the ability, right? Or even just for work, like a lot of folks that work at Apple, like Mm. even communicating on social media is challenging, right? So it's super privileged. But so can you tell us about how you, like what your role is on the project and, you know, excited to kind of get into the roadmap and all the other stuff? My role is actually to lead the project because um, we are not a a big team. It's basically uh, mostly me doing the most of the work and there are some uh, meta employees uh, on which I can ask them for feedback and reviews and uh, advice and uh, more administrative things. But somehow um, I'm self-driven and try to make the best to lead the project to something uh, that that works and is successful in uh, multiple aspects from code to marketing. And um, I think uh, it's better to ask for uh, forgiveness. I think we say that as for forgiveness instead of permission. So this is a bit uh, what I do uh, with the Cursorus. I try to do uh, what I feel is uh, is the right thing to do and allocate uh, the time uh, as I think it should be. But uh, it's not always easy because uh, there are things for which I need uh, to ask the permission. and. I don't know exactly on which task exactly I need to ask the permission and uh, which uh, task I can uh, decide on myself. So basically, it's me executing uh, the the project and uh, 
reviewing the pull request of the community and uh, organizing the, the open source work around the project. But I have the I am baked by uh, the meta employees that uh, review sometimes my work and uh, tell me uh, give me advice and things like that. Yeah. So I'm going to ask a question, and if you don't want to answer it, I'll ask for forgiveness. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. Most people that work on Facebook slash Meta open source projects are like full-time engineers with them. This seems like a abnormal, maybe it's not abnormal, but it's just what the perception is. Was this like staying freelance or just contracting with them? Was this your idea? Was this their idea? Are they like a full-time job? Is it part-time? How does it work? So first you have to know that I'm a freelancer for like maybe five years. At the time I took the job, it was only for like a three or four months and I thought it will the, the budget will uh, there will be no more budget after but the fact is that the budget was uh, reconducted and I took the lead of the project and uh, in the beginning there was not even enough budget for me working uh, full-time on it and now uh, the, the thing is I have my newsletter my work newsletter takes me like two days a week and I work only uh, three days a week on Docusaurus and I don't want to to leave behind my newsletter, so um, unfortunately, I can't increase the bandwidth I, I spend on Docusaurus. And uh, this is something uh, I've always been clear about it, is that I won't be able to work uh, five days a week on the project from the beginning. And for now, it has been uh, it has worked uh, quite well, I think. But now that the project starts to become a bit bigger, it's hard to review all the issues and the pull requests and things like that. And mm -hmm. I know that there are some uh, internal employees at Meta working um, also on the Docusaurus, but more on uh, abstractions on top for Meta documentation websites. And they will likely uh, take a bit, uh, get more involved in the project uh, in the future to, to help me uh, on various things. Yeah, that I mean, that's a really cool story. And thank you yeah. for sharing that. Thank you for asking, Jared. Good job. Like Jared Santo. <laughs> Watch out Chris Williams or Chris Matthews or whoever that guy is on the news that has the hard <laughs> hardball show, you know, that asks hard questions. So, so Sebastian, you're kind of in this interesting situation where you're managing the um, roadmap of an open source project that's owned by a corporation while you yourself don't work for that corporation full-time because like you stated, you don't want to commit full-time right now. And so yes. what's it like managing that? And more so, can you tell us a little bit about the story of this project? Was it always open source? Did Facebook open source it at some point? And like, what was the problem that it was solving for Facebook as well? So I asked you three questions in one question. Yeah, Go. <laughs> I will try to answer, but I, I was not there in the beginning, so I can't uh, have the full control than uh, others uh, at that time but uh, I think the project was created maybe uh, maybe six or seven years ago something like that it was internal at Facebook what uh, they did at, at that time is that uh, they have uh, they had a lot of documentation websites to create and um, it was not very scalable to create one documentation site for each project they had so they wanted a tool to be able to create uh, some kind of abstraction that permits to easily uh, deploy a new documentation websites without having to re-implement re something from scratch. So what they started was to, to copy-paste a Jekyll template. But uh, the problem, obviously... Je do you say Jekyll? Yeah, Jekyll template. Jekyll, like old-school Jekyll? Wow, okay. Yeah, but it was uh, maybe six or seven years ago, so I guess uh, there were not a lot of uh, 
alternatives at that time. I don't think maybe Gatsby existed already, but I'm not even sure. So. Oh, no, I don't even think that Gatsby like it was in the picture at that scale yet. But I'm more just like even six years ago, I thought Jekyll was kind of coming out of fashion, but maybe I'm wrong. So but anywho, don't let me uh, distract. <laughs> yeah, we could sidetrack on that. Yeah, I don't know. I never used Jekyll, so I can't tell you. <laughs> yeah, we're sidetracking. It's fine. So back to your story. <laughs> mm. So they tried to create some kind of uh, Jekyll boilerplate that they copied uh, to for each new documentation website, but uh, it was not very scalable either because if they want to, to add a new uh, user experience to the template, then you had to copy-paste the change to all the documentation websites. So it was... Easy to get started, but uh, once you you want to enhance the existing sites, you had to port the change manually to each site. So the maintenance was uh, not very scalable this time. So what they did is they had the idea of a real static site generator that would uh, actually just focus on the documentation um, on documentation, and they created Docusaurus uh, version one, maybe. Uh, five or six years ago, it was open sourced. I don't know if it was created before being open sourced or, or the opposite. I think it maybe it started internally, maybe six months before being open source. I don't know exactly mm. when it started internally, but it was open source maybe five years ago, I think. Okay. So they created the Kuzorus one and the idea is that you just uh, write markdown files on a, on a Git repository and then uh, you can uh, run a, a command and it builds a static site and you can customize some things like the color of the, the nav bar or, or many uh, term things that you you want to to add a bit of branding to your documentation site. It was possible uh, to change the color and add your logo and a footer and, and things like that. So they, they had some configuration options and uh, you just run a command and then it builds your, your website and there was uh, another command that you can run if you want to deploy to github pages for free you can uh, you could easily do that as well so this was the the idea of docusaurus so now maybe you wonder why uh, there is docusaurus 2 and why uh, it was released maybe uh, four years after the version one and why it took so long yeah yeah real quick sebastian before you get started i've been doing some sleuthing and i'll just follow up on Amel's sidetrack so the initial jekyll release 2008 yeah <laughs> gatsby first release was 2017 so mm. jekyll definitely by the time 2012 2013 hit jekyll had some five years and Gatsby was still not invented yet. Now there was Hugo, there were other options that definitely could have yeah. mm -hmm. played that game, but nonetheless, I just thought I'd follow up with that. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, <laughs> fact checker Jared Santo. He points for you. I do like the history of these things. It's interesting to remember because we've lived through it, but it's hard to like place, when was this? When did that happen? Was this before that? Yeah. And certainly back then, there were less choices than there are now. Yeah. I think um, the idea of uh, Jamstack and uh, things like that and Netlify and CI that post a command with the deploy previews and things like that, it didn't exist at the time. I think uh, maybe uh, when they were working on the Guzorus, static site generators were not very popular. I think uh, many people uh, thought it was uh, some kind of toy that you use to create your own personal website, but not uh, mm -hmm. anything more significant uh, than that. So it was a good time to build another static site generator with a focus on documentation, I think. 
Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it's kind of wild to think all of these things only have existed for a short number of years. You know, it's like, my God, I can't even imagine what life would be like without them. But before we get into the second segment, I just wanted to quickly, if you want to finish your thoughts on this like V1, V2, kind of this really long gap. It's like, my God, is this thing JavaScript or something? You know how JavaScript like, you know, had a party with, you know, ES5 and then like, you know, didn't show up to the party for many decades later. (laughs) Again, I'm just joking, but like there was a very long period of time where there was no innovation, right? Yeah. So then you DocuSource comes back with V2 and it's like, bam, I'm here. Like, so can you tell us about that? Yeah. Somehow there were some problems with the version one is what is that it was not very flexible. I think the main difference that you would notice is that it was not very flexible. You couldn't really add good branding to your documentation website. So all the documentation websites in V1 kind of uh, looked like each other's. It's just that you could change the logo, the footer, the navbar items and the, and the colors, but uh, not much more than that. You could customize your CSS by providing a custom CSS, but you know it's not very uh, flexible if you can't change your, the markup behind. You are a bit limited. And also a big difference in a technical perspective is that it used React at that time, but only on the server side. So React was never loaded on the client side and it was a multi-page application, not a single page application. So. It's like you did a React, but only server side. You used React as. I was a, as like, a... "What's wrong with that?" Mm. <laughs> just, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. We'll get into that. Don't open that can. Don't open that can. I'm just joking. I'm sorry. I was like, "Yeah, it sounds like the right way to manage static content." But okay, whatever. We won't go there. This is an interesting thing to hold it, Sebastian. We don't want to dive too deep too fast. Okay, cool. Yeah, because <laughs> that's definitely on the list of things to talk about. Yeah, so this is an interesting thing to discuss. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it was only used on the server, and React was never loaded on the client. So when you click on a link, it wouldn't uh, give a single page application navigation feeling. It was like you reload the page, like uh, like in Jekyll, <laughs> and uh, the application that didn't have the Turbo modules, or I don't, I don't remember exactly what it was in uh, in Rails. I think there was a system to to be able to navigate uh, seamlessly between uh, multi-page applications. Yeah, Turbo Links. Yeah, Turbo Links, right? All right. Well, we will pause right here. It's time to take a quick break, and this is the best uh, <laughs> break teaser of all times because we opened up a can partially. We just yeah. kind of like snapped the thing open, but we didn't get the rest of the can opened. <laughs> and we're going to open it up right on the other side. Yeah, it's like if you have cats, you know, you're like you're opening up a tuna can or you're opening up a can and they smell it, you know? Right. So yeah, so just stay tuned, kids. We'll be right back. Smell that <laughs> spicy hot takes. This episode is brought to you by Retool, and they have a private beta ready for you to check out. This is the fastest way to now build native mobile apps for your mobile workforce. There is no complex frameworks anymore or tedious deployments. You can build mobile apps with what you already know, like JS and SQL. This is all in the browser, no code or what they call low code. 
Join the wait list. Head to retool.com slash products slash mobile. The link will be in the show notes. Again, retool.com slash products slash mobile. has arrived it looks great i mean the website looks great the list of things it does looks great so congratulations first of all on shipping a big rewrite i'm sure that was a lot of effort took a lot of time thanks and we talked about it a bit at the start but one of the big features now is it is a single page app and amel and i both had the same guttural response of like (laughs) a content focused documentation site seems like the perfect fit for a statically generated multi-page mm-hmm. HTML thing. Yeah. <laughs> don't you lose SEO? Don't you lose certain aspects? Don't you want Perf. your stuff to be fast and crawlable? It seems like, though, looking through the site that you guys have thought of all these things. So <laughs> let's finish opening that can and let's just talk about it. And we'll, then we'll go through some of the other things that 2.0 has to offer. Yeah, I think uh, I can maybe talk for half an hour just on that topic, but uh, <laughs> you will see a lot of things on Twitter. They, there are people that say, yeah, why do you want to use a React to create a blog? And you know, there are memes with uh, you create a very complex thing with Webpack and uh, and TypeScript, and then you have a blog with just one article. <laughs> <laughs> it's because we love JavaScript. Right. We addicted to it. We love it all the time. We want it in our veins and right. we are, more, 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 give more. me more. More, more. So I think my position is that it's a bit simple. I think the navigation of single page application is great. When you click on a link, you can uh, navigate almost instantly to the next page. Why is that? Is that because the fact that it is a single page application, we can um, prefetch the the resources that are needed for the the related pages. For example, if you over a link, you can uh, prefetch the the React components for the the page that you are about to visit. And once you click on the link, then it's almost instant because you just have to to do the the client side rendering. So um, I think this gives a great experience. And also there are new features in React that uh, will even improve things. For example. Um, this is not something that is really officially uh, mentioned, but I believe that the future of React is that you can start to render the next page that you are about to visit even before you actually click the link because React with the new features with uh, concurrent React, you can uh, <laughs> somehow render multiple uh, React trees in parallel and uh, you are able to somehow uh, eagerly render pages that <laughs> the user may never visit. So somehow it's it's a bit weird, but potentially when you click on the on the button, you could actually uh, render really instantly. What's so funny, ML? <laughs> <laughs> so What's so funny? <laughs> I don't know. I just I'm just I'm just laughing because it's like I kept waiting for you to say <laughs> 
Because React knows what you're thinking, you know? Oh. Because, <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, all you need to do is add this, put this little sticky sticker on the side of your user's foreheads, and, you know, <laughs> React will just read their minds and prefetch all the links that they're going to click. You joke, but there, there is... Oh, there's some machine learning driving, uh, like, I'm sure, the, yeah. the prefetching strategy. I'm, I'm, I'm sure about it. Yeah, I mean, it was a half joke. <laughs> <laughs> there is, I think, a project called uh, GuestGS, and it uses uh, Google Analytics data to predict yeah. the next page that you are most likely to visit. And there is a Gatsby plugin for that. <laughs> I would just say it's fascinating, but man, that's just a whole lot of engineering. Yeah. <laughs> when you could just like let them click on it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and avoid using JavaScript and just have it be yeah. static and whatever else. No, actually, so first of all, this is cool. I think it's interesting. For me, you're leveraging pre-caching and pre-fetching and whatever else, yeah. right? So this optimistic kind of architecture, yeah. which is great. But for me, all of that needs to be like, you need to be a little conservative with that because your users might be on a mobile device. Are they on Wi-Fi? Are they on 3G? Are you yeah, but pre-fetching a bunch of things on their data plan? Are you are you making their machine do more than it needs to right now because they're low on battery? I mean, right? Yeah. So you want to be conservative with that. It's a superpower. Yeah, I agree. So first, I want to mention that uh, we don't uh, do the prefetching if if there is uh, low bandwidth or uh, data saving or whatever. We can uh, prevent that, and then it will only uh, fetch the components once the user clicks. So it's possible. Mm -hmm. Somehow, I think uh, yeah, for sure, it's a trade-off because you can, uh, e for example, even pre-rendering. I said that you can start to render the next component of the next page, but maybe the user has a very bad CPU and uh, wants to preserve the battery. So why don't you want to? Correct. It's not just the bandwidth; it's also the CPU. You have to. It also comes down to the environment, right? Like, I mean, we need to start yeah. talking as a community more broadly around digital trash and like compute power, right? Like there's still trees and resources being used too, yeah. right? So there's also an element of needing to be environmentally conscious. But anyway, so back to V2. So you made this migration and this shift to use React and it was an intentional decision to not use server-side rendering and uh, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us a little bit about like what were the driving forces behind that decision? Like, I wasn't there at the time, mm -hmm. so I can't really say uh, I think maybe the, the decision to create uh, the Cusorus version 2 was decided maybe two years before I joined the project, so I don't okay. know exactly the, all the context, but right. I think um, it's a meta product, so they wanted, of course, to, to use React because uh, this is a popular framework, and also I think there are some things that multi-page applications can do. For example, if you have an intercom button at the bottom of your dock or some kind of a chat widget or whatever, mm -hmm. if you navigate from one page to another, it's really annoying if the widget resets itself. For example, it loses state. Yes. So there are a lot of um, great developer experience on content sites that you still want to benefit from uh, preserving the, the state uh, when navigating from one page to another. Right. So... Um, I think it has benefits to have a single-page application navigation even on a content website. But maybe the things will change because the browser APIs are evolving. I, I know that there are some APIs like transition APIs and shared element uh, transitions and many things like that that permits to to animate the transition from one page to another. I don't know exactly how it works for the state, but maybe there are some workarounds. But I think it would be still a bit complicated to replicate the um, the user experience of a single page application 
for multiple use cases, including the the chat widget that we have on uh, mm -hmm. on the documentation website, for example. So to be clear, on the website in the docs, it says that for every page there is an HTML page that is generated. Yeah, and is available and so yeah that's how you handle for instance seo like they're all different pages yeah but then this spa is almost like a progressive enhancement if you will for like a more interactive usage of the site is that fair to say like it's almost like thinking of it that way as like an upgrade but you don't have to have it yeah it's exactly like next.js or gatsby so you render the page on the server we render it uh, statically because we don't have uh, any uh, server-side rendering. So it's at build time that we render all the pages, like a uh, classic sta uh, static site generator. And then the browser loads the HTML page, and then we load React on top of that page to enhance it with the, the single page application. But I agree that uh, this may seem overkill for a documentation website, and we actually take care of uh, making it uh, I mean, I care a lot about uh, prog progressive announcement. So for me, the idea is that almost all this, the documentation sites should work without JavaScript enabled. So you should be able to navigate across the pages to be able to navigate inside the documentation sidebar that, uh, that permits to, to navigate uh, inside your content. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you should be able to do many things. Maybe there are some things that don't work, like uh, being able to search or to toggle the, the dark mode, but uh, those are not... Uh, too critical and you can uh, you can consult the content uh, yeah. without JavaScript. I'm really glad you said that because I, I was going to bring up this point about curl, right? Like, especially for content sites, especially for developer documentation sites. Like, you know, if I'm in my terminal and I just want to look up something, you know, one of the things I really like about NPM, like NPM, the entire API catalog, right? Similar to native built-ins from Unix, right? Like, then you know, you just go to the man pages, right? So manual, mm -hmm. man short for manual, not man like person man. <laughs> That's the patriarchy that name right, those, isn't it? Right, right. <laughs> Probably, probably, <laughs> you know, our problematic ancestors or whatever, right? Yeah, we should have some woman pages out there, shouldn't we? Yes, dude, I'm all mm. about that. Yes, <laughs> why, why not? So in the NPM CLI, right, like all the documentation is available to you right there. You never have to go to a browser. Mm. Same thing for being able to curl a website's documentation would be nice too, because I can just curl, pipe into whatever, and just I can do all my searching and grepping very efficiently mm. from my terminal window. And so for me, it's like, I'm glad to learn that that the SPA is like a shim layer and there is a core HTML that's still generated. That's awesome. Yeah. However, like, I guess for me, it still feels like overkill, but it's okay. We can agree to disagree. I mean, I'm not going to love every single thing about this project. Yeah. So... Actually, this is not something that exists today, but uh, what I really like is that uh, the, there is a mod of Docusaurus that works 100% uh, without any JavaScript. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that'd be awesome. For example, uh, I have a pull request where it basically doesn't hydrate JS like it, uh, like it used to do in the past. But uh, nice. there are some things that do not work uh, currently uh, with this mod. For example, the, the search. And I asked the Algolia team if I could uh, maybe create an endpoint so that if someone search while JS is disabled, it will just submit a regular form to a new URL where they could get the, the search results and things like that. That is so cool. So I really care about all this so that uh, the, the experience can be almost 100% uh, uh, complete yeah. with, uh, right. with JS uh, disabled. 
But this is complicated. Yeah, there are some things. Uh, it is. Even accessibility is uh, not always uh, mm -hmm. easy without uh, JavaScript. So. Well, hopefully, I mean, over time, DocuSource can be a great example of somebody who's done this style web app, but has taken into consideration all of these factors and provided accessible, fast HTML for who needs it and fancy JS transitions for who wants those. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really cool. I, we are getting a bit bogged down because I think we just have different opinions on architectures here, but there's tons of cool features in this thing. Yeah. The write your docs in Markdown, it's all MDX powered, so you can embed code things inside of it. Why don't you move us down the, the path of what else DocuSaurus 2 has to offer? So first, the idea was to be feature complete with version one. So what we did is um, to have the advanced features like uh, versioning. So if you want to manage multiple versions of your documentation, you can uh, you can just create a snapshot copy of the current documentation and then have two versions in parallel in the same Git branch. This is a bit different from other projects that use one version per Git branch for the documentation. And uh, I think it's interesting to be able to do both on a case-by-case -case basis, which it's possible with Docuservice. So for example, if you have two or three versions of your product in parallel in the same Git branch, the thing is that you can the change in your product to three versions of the documentation in a single pull request. So this is a really easier to, to manage. For example, if you, if you implement a feature in version two and then backport it to version one for a reason and another, another, you can just submit one docs pull request and then you will be able to update version one and version two documentation in a single pass. So this is a easier for maintenance. And also we have a support for ATN to be able to translate your website. It was also possible with um, the version one. What, uh, how it works is that you can just adopt a file system convention so that you can uh, put the translation files, the Markdown translated files in a specific folder, and then they will somehow override the content in English if it's your main language. And you can run your your website with a with a clear command with the local on which you want to build the site, so that you can deploy, for example, the French site or the the English site, uh, depending on uh, on your CI or whatever you want. So these are some features of Docuserus uh, One that still are in Docuserus Two, and Docuserus 2 brings the ability to have a plugin system. So this enables the community to be able to, to create plugins to enhance the Docuserus uh, site with uh, their own uh, logic. For example, reading Markdown files in a proprietary format or XML files or whatever they want is possible. So it's much more flexible. And also we have a lot of uh, teaming capabilities. This time, unlike Docuserus version 1, when it was not possible to customize the the HTML markup and you could just provide some uh, CSS. With Docuserus 2, you were able to to override somehow any React component that uh, renders the UI. So if you are not satisfied with the default, you can always, we call this eject, we call this swizzle. And there are two modes with uh, swizzle. It's there is eject, which will create a local copy of the ten component that you want to, to customize. And there is also wrap, which is uh, somehow creates a React wrapper component around an existing one. So for example, if you have a component and you want to add something else before or after this component in the UI, it's possible with uh, 
without a, a lot of uh, maintenance because you don't have to create a copy of the original component. Because if you create a copy, you have to maintain it over time and it might break because uh, if we do a change in Docusaurus, maybe you will be affected by, uh, by changes um, and your site will fail if you upgrade, for example. So the more you customize, the more it's likely to break. But we try really hard to to make it easy to maintain over time, and we try to constantly improve on this side. So the idea of Docusaurus 2 for me is to really great-looking documentation websites for for your project without too much pain, and at the same time have enough flexibility to add a, a very strong branding, but uh, not in an unmaintainable way. So I think this is why you, you can see today that there are some uh, really uh, big companies using Docusaurus from uh, Recently, we have seen uh, Snapchat, Figma also, Superbase, and uh, many other uh, large companies like that. You can't even know that they have a Docusaurus site because some of them really customize them. So even me, if I go to the site, I have to open the DevTools to be sure that it was a, a Docusaurus site. And I constantly, every time I, I go to a website, I ask myself, is this Docusaurus? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Am I in the matrix? Is this real? <laughs> is chicken really chicken? What does chicken taste like? Yeah, no. Yeah. So do you leave a little Easter egg for yourself? And when is Figma going to send me my options? You know? <laughs> yeah, on that sale. How about something for the effort? You know, the 20 bills. I'll take one. Just give me one bill. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so first of all, wow, a lot to unpack there. So let's just take it from the top. Mm -hmm. Document versioning. Yeah. Right. So that's huge. So, for, you know, when I heard about that, I was like, oh, my God, like, wow. Talk about solving a really big pain point for maintainers. I mean, this is something where, unfortunately, it's one of those things where it's felt by the maintainer community, not so much the broader developer community. Right. But it is a real problem. Yeah. Maintaining versions of your documentation within the same repo, getting the NPM published to show that correctly, yada, yada, yada. I mean, for every major version, patch and minor version of whatever that you're supporting, it's like a huge undertaking to keep those docs in sync as well. Yeah. So first of all, like amazing, amazing feature. And then like the translations piece that you talked about, like the, you know, the internationalization support. Uh, so that's not necessarily new, but it seems like we, you have some enhancements yeah. that we, you've made to the core functionality in V2. That itself is huge too. Like being able to kind of, I love this idea of like, what are all the things that you need to do to maintain documentation like sites, right? You need to maintain it in different versions. You need to possibly get it translated. People are gonna wanna search it, right? So you have the search functionality as well. So it's like all of these things that like everybody's doing manually in different ways and poorly, you know? Yeah. You all have kind of abstracted and created these clean interfaces for the community to leverage, especially the maintainer community, right? Because these are the folks that are, yeah. you know, doing the hero's work already, you know? So anything we can do to make their lives easier is like just a huge win. Yeah. And so glad to hear about all the success and adoption. I mean, in looking at the website today, like I'm seeing Mark Erickson, our beloved Mark Erickson, <laughs> talking about this, Max Lynch <laughs> from the Angular community, yeah. you know, super based, you know, uh, Ken C. Dawes, you name it, all these people, Debbie O'Brien, right? So lots of folks kind of singing praises for this project. So, I mean, you know, kudos, pretty good stuff. <laughs> yeah. So what's feedback that you've been getting about V2 in terms of kind of missing functionality or things that could be improved? Can we talk about the like the part of the retro that's like what to improve? Yeah. So 
I don't have a lot of bandwidth to work on Docuzorus, and unfortunately, it's hard uh, for me because uh, there are a lot of, uh, I mean, there are more and more issues and pull requests, and mm -hmm. the large projects. I have some goals for Docuzorus, but it's difficult to execute them because uh, I don't have enough time to do both the community work and uh, the marketing and uh, the implementation of uh, the huge features. But I think some of the most requested ones are a tailwind term. So the idea for me for a tailwind time would be that it share exactly the same user experience as the one we have currently. Maybe uh, some UI details will change a bit, but we don't want to duplicate all the code that we did for the accessibility, the layouts and the things like that. It's a bit uh, too complicated to have to duplicate things and somehow uh, manage a, a new copy of all the work that we already did on the UI. So the goal for me is progressively to share most of the code in a separate package, which is um, agnostic of the style. You know, some uh, some React components that are here, but don't contain any class name. Somehow they just uh, contain the logic, but they encapsulate the logic of the theme, but not the, mm -hmm. the UI. Yeah, no, I mean, this is all fantastic stuff. So we're going to talk about the plugin architecture, which is kind of the secret sauce for how all these big companies like Figma, Superbase were able to kind of create these DocuSaurus sites without even folks like Sebastian knowing, right? Yeah. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the community. We're going to talk about the marketing. We're going to talk about the roadmap. Uh, I'm super interested to go back to the governance thing that I brought up earlier. So all this and more. <laughs> we'll be right back. What's up, friends? This episode is brought to you by Sourcegraph. With the release of Sourcegraph 4.0 and the Starship event just a few weeks behind us, it is super clear that Sourcegraph is becoming not just code search, but a full-on code intelligence platform. And I'm here with Joel Cortler, product manager of Code Insights for Sourcegraph. Joel, this move from code search to code intelligence is a really big deal. How would you explain this feature, Code Insights, if you're just talking to folks in the hallway track of your favorite conference? Um, I would really start with technical because before I was product manager, I used to be an engineer as well. And it's really cool and exciting just to be able to say, we're going to turn your code base into a database. And the structured language that you need to interact is just the ability to write a, a code search. You know, literal search, that's totally fine. Regular expression, you know, that'll give you a few more advanced options, even a structural search. But the number of long tail possibilities it unlocks, truly the journey of building this product was just saying, well, we've just unlocked, you know, an infinite number of possibilities. We got to figure out some immediate use cases so we can start to, you know, invest in this product, build it and sell it. But we're only getting started in terms of the number of uses that we're uncovering for it. The story I told you about discovering like version tracking turned out to be a really important use case that wasn't even on our roadmap six months prior to discovering that as we were already planning to launch this product until we talked to enough folks, realized this was a problem and then found, well, oh, that's like a simple regular expression capture group that you can just plug right in because we've really built this system to not limit the power of what we built. We don't want to give you like three out of the box templates and you can only change like one character or something. It's truly like the templates are there to hold your hand to get you started, but if you can come up with anything you'd want to track in your code base, you can do that with Code Insights. I love it. Thank you, Joel. So right now there is a treasure trove of insights 
just waiting for you. Living inside your code base, your code base is now a queryable database thanks to Sourcegraph. This opens up a world of possibility for your code and the intelligence you can gain from it. A good next step is to go to about.sourcegraph.com code insights. The link will be in the show notes. See how the teams are using this awesome feature again, about.sourcegraph.com code insights. Again, this link is in the show notes. And by our friends at Fly, run your full stack apps and your databases, close your users all over the world, no ops required. And I'm here with Brad Gessler, who is helping to build the future Rails cloud at Fly. Brad, what's got you excited about Rails on Fly? Uh, it's no secret that Rails is this really productive framework and application. We've also seen that happen. There's a bajillion different hosts that you can choose from out there that all make it really easy to deploy your Rails applications. We've had these for years. Right. There's nothing really magical about that anymore. It's just, this is what we expect. We want to type a deploy command and this thing ends up on a server somewhere. The thing that I think that sets Fly apart from all that is it scales. It has so many scaling stories. It has, again, the table stake stuff. Ooh, wow, you can add more memory to a machine. All those things you would expect from a hosting provider. Again, Fly, you can scale out. You're going to have customers that live in Singapore, that live in Frankfurt. You need to get servers there. And mm. Fly lets you do that. Again, with just a few commands, you can provision all these servers in these different parts of the world. And then the real magic with one command, you can type in Fly Deploy and you have all these servers provisioned around the world. They just work. Mm -hmm. People hit yourcompany.com and they're hitting the Frankfurt server. And the same person in Singapore is typing in your .com and it just works and they're hitting your servers in Singapore. <laughs> so this thing scales out beautifully which is really important, especially if you're starting to run turbo applications or turbo native applications where you need that really low latency. Your application needs to respond to these users in under 100 milliseconds. Otherwise, to them, it's not going to be instant. They're going to be waiting. It's important to be fast and Fly makes that possible. The reason I joined it is because of this kind of global magic that we're going to be shipping. And that's something that I want to bring to Rails developers all around the world. That's awesome. Thanks, Brad. So the future Rails cloud is at Fly. Global Magic is on its way. Try it free today at fly.io. Again, fly.io. sounds like one of the things that makes DocuSource 2 so usable in all these different contexts is that plugin architecture. Sebastian, can you give us some examples? You mentioned theming. So that one, I guess, immediately resonates in my brain. But like, what are some other things that you can do with plugins? And then we'll get into the actual way that you do them. So um, first, you have to understand that uh, the core features of DocuSaurus have been implemented with uh, plugins. So we have three core plugins, which is the Docs plugin to create a documentation uh, section of your site. We have the page plugin, which permits to create landing pages on your site. And we have the, the blog plugin, which permits to create the blog. The docs plugin is somehow like the page plugin, in, but instead you have a, a navigation sidebar on the site, which permits to navigate across a set of documentation and various versioning and things like that. So all the features that we have created for the users that are opinionated toward the content-centric uh, focus, those are free plugins and that's all. If you want to create, for example, tomorrow 
a new plugin, for example, you want to create a digital garden or digital custom or obsidian uh, thing or whatever, you could build that with Docusaurus. We don't provide this officially, but you could. If you want to integrate with a CMS, you could also create a plugin and try to, to wire it to your CMS. And some people do that already. You have the freedom to create whatever you want. The idea of a plugin is that you can read a source some, uh, for example, uh, a source folder for files that you want to, to read as a source for your content. But it can be a remote source if you want. We don't provide much tool to, to integrate with CMS, but it's possible technically. And then once you have read the source, you can translate the content that you read from the source if you want to internationalize it. And then from the translated content, you are able to create the pages. You say which you add the pages to the the plugin will create pages and a pages a page as um, a permalink so that you can uh, URL, the final URL of the page. It has a React component that is supposed to render it and it has the props that the component is supposed to receive. So the plugin is responsible to create the roots of the that it manages and then the team is supposed to render those pages. We provide also a theme which implements the UI for the free pages that we, the free content plugins that we created, the docs, the blog, and the page plugin. But you can also override with uh, the with your own version. You can create your own components to implement your own theme mm -hmm. that works with our plugins if you want, or you can just take the existing theme and say, yeah, I don't like the footer of this team, but everything else is fine. So I, I will just override the footer and implement something. Uh, oh, nice. So that's the modularity piece where like everything is yeah. replaceable. So you, if I understood you correctly, you're saying that like we have a core architecture that supports kind of smart defaults and there's a turnkey experience, but all aspects of the core defaults can be overwritten, like down to the like footer level, right? <laughs> Which is kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's not just the footer. You can actually override any right. file in the term. So this is powerful, but at the same time, this is a dangerous because it creates an implicit API surface for Docusaurus, where, for example, if you decide to override a component and then in the next version of Docusaurus, yeah. we decide to rename it, then your app will lose the customizations. So you will have to figure out why we decided to rename this component. So now what we started to do uh, recently is that we, we mark the components as safe to override or dangerous. And then the, the maintainer of the site decides uh, for himself if he really wants to do something dangerous or not. I mean, it's not very dangerous in the end. Maybe the word is not uh, correct, but... If you upgrade the Cusarus, you have a risk that something will break. So if you, for example, override a component and then we decide to rename it in the next version of the Cusarus, you will lose the, the customization. So mm -hmm. this is the danger. So somehow you can break your seat if you upgrade it and uh, you use the next version of the Cusarus and then uh, you can't build because it fails because you have components that do not receive exactly the same props and things like that. So. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of components and you can override everything, but uh, there are some components that are more suitable to be overridden than others. Mm -hmm. So uh, you have to, yeah. to use uh, this uh, powerful tool uh, carefully to make sure that uh, the upgrades are not too painful somehow. Oh yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, any amount of like monkey patching and or like heavy usage of 
undocumented APIs, right? Like, yeah. there's like <laughs> you can do this. This isn't in the docs, but you can, right? Like, it always comes with the risk. Mm-hmm. It's always like a, there be dragons warning or, and or like, mm-hmm. you know, you should never be surprised when your stuff breaks. That being said, I'd love to hear about examples. Like, can you share any highlights of some cool customizations that have been done in the wild for kind of high traffic sites? We have seen quite a very different set of customizations. I think some of um, the most common ones, adding a common system at the bottom of uh, your blog or your docs. If you look at the React Native website, there is, for example, a rating system. You can uh, rate the page on which you are to say if the, yes. the documentation is at full or not. Mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of uh, custom uh, footers too, because companies uh, like to have uh, their branding in the footer and something that is quite similar to their main website. Mm-hmm. There are some uh, customizations on the the fonts and the colors and uh, many other things. And mm-hmm. it's very uh, diverse. I think there is no... Uh, yeah. Imagination is the only limit, right? Yeah. Right. So, to some degree. Yeah. No, that's cool. We have a, a page on the website uh, which, which called uh, the Seed Showcase. And uh, you can take a look. There are maybe uh, 200 sites there, and you can um, yeah. you can sort them by. Uh, for example, we have uh, edit tags to each site. For example, if a site has a great design, we mark it with a design tag so that you can uh, nice. easily uh, get some inspiration from great uh, open source websites and eventually steal their code uh, if you want to replicate. Uh, what they did so mm-hmm. yeah this is quite useful for the community too yeah that showcase is great it's very yeah. fun to just scroll through and very impressive all of the sites that are being built with this i assume that the plugins are distributed just via npm if you're going to actually get that out there to the public or how do you if i wanted to share it outside of my org so for docusaurus core plugins they are all in the monorepo with the docusaurus core uh, Code. So the free plugins that we maintain are officially uh, distributed on NPM under the, the Docusaurus uh, org. And community plugins are published on uh, NPM like any other NPM package. So you can just uh, NPM install them and, mm-hmm. and uh, install them. And also we have seen some quite interesting plugins, for example, for local search. For example, we use Algolia by default, which is a solution that we uh, maintain officially. Algolia Doc Search, which is uh, free for open source technical uh, documentations and things like that, I think. But uh, if you can't use Algolia for various reasons, if you don't want to pay or if you don't want uh, your data to be owned by Algolia, you can install a local search plugin. And I think there are a few options based on uh, various uh, local search libraries like uh, Lunar, uh, Fuser, and things like that. There are a lot of uh, different uh, client side. Uh, browser search libraries implementing tokenization and things like that. So I think we have three uh, popular local search plugins today. And also, for example, uh, many websites want to document an API. And today, I think we have um, two open API plugins to document your API if you want to add this to your documentation website. And there is also Ooh. a Redoc plugin, Redocusaurus. Uh, which permits also to use Redoc, which permits to document an open API inside the docusaurus. Uh, yeah, that's so cool. I mean, the open API spec integration is very yeah. exciting and it's like a no-brainer, right? Like, that's so cool. The thing is, you don't even need actually to use a plugin to implement this because, for example, mm-hmm. there is a site that I really like. It's the, the Courier website. Mm-hmm. They have a doc with a, an interactive API client and they implemented this only with MDX. 
So just with NDX, they built a really great uh, developer experience where you can just wow. add your API token and then uh, play with the API. And wow. it's just because we can embed uh, React components inside your doc, you can build already uh, very advanced uh, things. That's very cool. And so like, can we talk about the community and like, just like how they can kind of participate in the roadmap? Is there like an open roadmap somewhere that like people where people can like upvote or they can see what's coming next? Like, what's the community story for DocSource? Do you have a Discord channel? Is there like, what are all the things? We have a very active Discord channel where you can uh, easily find help. And uh, when you ask a question, generally uh, I answer that you should uh, join uh, Discord because most questions are easy questions and there are a lot of helpful persons in Discord that will uh, be able to answer. So it's better if uh, I keep my time to implement uh, difficult features instead of uh, doing too much support because uh, it's uh, somehow endless. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, so the Discord is very active and uh, I think we don't have a very clear roadmap because, um, I mean, open source, it's complicated. There is also a, a new important bug that uh, that gets opened and, mm -hmm. and still the priority of uh, something uh, less priority, but um, more important. So I try to implement uh, important features like supporting the next version of React and things like that progressively when I have time. And uh, once there is enough progress, then I will release it. Sometimes we discuss a bit about uh, what kind of new features we want uh, soon in Docusaurus. And uh, when we release a new version, we mark some uh, goals that we have for future versions of Docusaurus, but we don't commit to uh, releasing, for example, uh, a list of uh, features in the next version of the Cusarus. I think what we want to do is maybe release uh, three or four times a major version per, uh, per year mm -hmm. and try to have uh, at least a few major uh, features in each uh, major version. The idea is that uh, we don't block a release because a feature is not implemented because, uh, you know, sometimes you decide uh, three months before that you want to have this feature and then you, you find out that it's not possible at that time yeah. because there, there are some blockers so <laughs> also things change i mean honestly like if you're planning yeah. things out three months in advance is sometimes it's like is that thing even still relevant like yeah there's the urgency factor is like so understated when it comes to like roadmap planning it's like is it still important is it still urgent is it still, you know because if it's important and urgent usually you're getting to it sooner right so, there's, so mm. it's a natural yeah. natural selection of the roadmap almost and by the way i just wanted to give you a shout out because we had mateo kalina and his co-founder, Luca Marazzi, they were on the show last week talking to us about Platformatic DB, which is like this like incredible new open source project that's like sane mm. APIs and sane conventions. They built in all this good standards into this library for kind of more turnkey experience. And they are using Docusaurus for their yeah. site. So <laughs> just for what it's worth, they gave you a shout out on, oh, they gave the project a shout out on the show last week. So... <laughs> Thank you. I didn't know they were using it, so... Now you know. <laughs> nice to know. Now you know. One more thing to add to the showcase. Although Matea was like, I don't have good CSS skills. I had to Google how to, like, add an element to the page. He's like, HTML, CSS. <laughs> He's like, he lives under the hood. Yeah. Right. So about the showcase, it's not exhaustive, actually. I don't... Um, we decided to not add sites unless they submit it. Mm -hmm. And uh, currently, we I try to streamline the submit process. You just have to comment in an issue and you say, I want to be added. Oh, nice. Here is my site. Here is the source code. And uh, mm -hmm. 
I want this title and this description and that's all. Cool. But the thing is, there are a lot of uh, websites that are not edited yet. And for example, I wish uh, Snapshot and uh, Figma and, and others would submit their site, but uh, it didn't happen yet. So <laughs> Yeah. So this is how I know that this project is backed by a real company that's funded versus like a starving startup because the startup doesn't ask for permission. They're like, oh, Figma's using our thing. Yeah. Right. Figma's going on our website. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. You're so modest. You're like, yeah. oh, well, you know, I'm just going to wait for them to submit. <laughs> Somebody on Forbes.com commented once on an article and put our name in there as seen on Forbes as featured. Yeah. You know, that's how startups work. <laughs> Pretty much. We have offices in New York, Boston, Chicago, everywhere, all the places the internet reaches. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. We're a global company. Global. Yeah. <laughs> the good thing about Docusaurus is that people know that it's used because uh, you can uh, recognize most of the time the layout everywhere you. Your browser. Yeah, like a bootstrap. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Remember Twitter bootstrap? You could always tell like what's <laughs> Twitter bootstrap website. Yeah. Yep. The problem is that the best sites you don't you don't often recognize the users because they customized mm. it. So for example, if you go to Unique. I think uh, you don't know uh, it's Docusaurus if you go to the Figma plugins website. Honestly, I had to double check. I wasn't sure and I was really happy to know that. Uh, so what's the actual litmus test? What do you do? How do you know for sure it's Docusaurus? You open the HTML and there is a header uh, meta static site generator, I think, uh, at the top of the file. So you know uh, for sure that it's Docusaurus if... Uh, if there is this meta tag. Mm -hmm. Okay, what if they strip that out? They don't want to give you any props. Yeah, they, they could strip it out, but uh, <laughs> I don't think there is a lot of value. <laughs> What's the next test? You have to have a fallback test. It's a cascading thing. Source code. Yeah, I, I can recognize uh, from the CSS and the HTML if it's Docusaurus, but... Uh, I'm sure you can. That's how you know you've entered the matrix when you just you can just <laughs> see it for yourself. You know what though? Speaking of code fingerprints, code fingerprints are very real, y'all. Like sure. I guess when looking at ransomware and all this other stuff, like they're able to find the patterns and you know, mm. so they know, oh, this group is responsible for this ransomware attack, you know, because <laughs> yeah. apparently your code don't lie, you know. <laughs> so like yeah. your code is always like it speaks for you. It's like, oh, this person wrote this code, you know. Yeah. But yeah. So no, this has been a really fun discussion and it's a cool project. I haven't used it myself. I've just always seen my maintainer friends rave about this project. And I'm like, oh my God, this is so cool. It's solving so many good problems. Yeah, yeah really, you can try. If you want to try immediately, you just have to go to docusaurus.new in your browser. Ooh. Yeah, it works in Code Sandbox and StackBit. So you can try in uh, five minutes. I made the tutorial very, very fast. Nice. Really, uh, in five minutes, you understand the value of the project. So yeah. uh, try it now. Oh. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, try it now. Well, I'll say that it's obvious to me why so many smart people are singing DocuSaurus's praises. DocuSaurus is a hard thing to say, Sebastian, because you definitely sweated the details. It's clear to me, even though you may have a different take on SPAs than I do, that you've thought it out and you've like actually mm. done the hard work of like mm -hmm. figuring out answers. Some people just pick an SPA and throw it over the fence and don't care about their users. You clearly do. One example of that in your own website's documentation, even go so far as like helping people pick their deployment targets based on what they, how much work they want to put in and how much money they have kind of a thing. I mean, like, nice. you do a really, really good job of being a great documentation site for a documentation site generator, which probably you feel like you have to because, you know, it's about docs. But it's also clear that you <laughs> want to because you've put so much work in, all the little details 
really, really good job. Uh, it's an impressive project. So yeah, uh, definitely. Thank you. I haven't used it myself, but I'm already waiting to. Like it's yeah, it's cool. It is cool. And also, can we plug your newsletter? It sounds like a really important project, and I've heard about it. I might even be subscribed for all I know, honestly. <laughs> but I have definitely seen something like this. Is it this, this week, week in, in React? React? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, where can people go to learn about that? Dot com. Dot com? Okay. This week in regs.com. <laughs> there you go. Got it. Don't make it too hard on us. Actually, I created the website with Docusaurus. Nice. <laughs> because I, I thought it was a nice idea to to use the tool that I'm working on uh, with Facebook. Yeah. Because it has a nice internationalization features and my newsletter is localized. So I have maybe 300 subscribers in French and uh, 8,000 in English. And I have to send every week the email in two languages. That's cool. Oh my God. Okay. But honestly though, this is where I feel, I'm so excited to hear that because I come trying to keep telling teams like being inclusive and being diverse as a business, it pays. Mm. Businesses that cater to multiple markets, multiple audiences, multiple different kinds of people. That's a wider reach. And just right there. I mean, my gosh, how many thousands of subscribers do you have reading it in French? And, you know, French is one of the most widely spoken languages in the world. I mean, so super cool. I'm just wow. Thank you for doing that. So do you write it twice? I write it in French first, and then I translate it in English, and uh, it takes maybe half an hour. I try to do the, a quick translation. Uh, I use uh, DeepL to help me a bit uh, to get faster. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm not a native English speaker, and yeah. I do mistakes, and I think the audience is... Uh, Forgives me because the content is great, so yeah, that's what matters. And I mean, the newsletter in French and English uh, is a uh, could uh, deserve its own talk, but maybe not on this podcast. Sure. But there are a lot of uh, interesting things being uh, in two languages. I try to make it sustainable, and for example, just in terms of uh, sponsoring, I am able to get different sponsors for the French audience and for the English audience. Yes. Again, it literally pays. It's a good business to be inclusive and diverse in your audience and your targets and as well as like, you know, in terms of the people that are writing and doing the work. So, yeah. so kudos again. It's been an absolute pleasure, Sebastian. Seriously. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So listener, all the links to all the things are in your show notes. We've got DocuSaurus in there. We've got the showcase in there. We've got this week in react.com in there. Just click through and click through to check out what Sebastian is up to. On behalf of Amel, I'm Jared. Sebastian, this has been an enjoy. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. <laughs> DocuSaurus version two, y'all. Check it out. Yeah. It's making moves. That's our show. We'll talk to you again next week. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Changelog++ members, stick around. I asked a bonus question to Sebastian after the show ended. I was so intrigued by his relationship to Docusaurus and Meta, I just had to ask him what he would do if Meta decided to change the project, shut it down, or let him loose and assign someone else to maintain it. Sebastian was gracious enough to answer that question, and he has a pretty interesting view on the situation. If you aren't a Changelog++ member, check it out. Your membership directly supports our work, gets you closer to the metal with bonuses like this one, and makes the ads disappear from all Changelog podcasts. Learn more at changelog.com slash plus plus. Special thanks once again to Fastly and Fly.io for their support. They help make JS Party possible. And to the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder for making sure our beat supply is always topped up. Next up on the pod, Nick, Amelia, Amel, and myself play another ridiculous round of Story of the Week, 
Head Lies, and Pro Tip Time. Stay tuned for that. We'll have it ready for you next week. Thank you.